This is episode 93 of Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus mountains of Russia. I'm Andrew. And I'm Eli. Eli, one thing I think our listeners have probably gathered about me over time is that I'm a big sports fan. Yes. You know this about me. In fact, I um, I had the rare opportunity right after the Super Bowl to talk shop with Andrew about sports. You know, I, I had some comments and we talked about the game <laughs> and then there was a pause and I said, well, that's about all you're going to get on me for the next year. So you, <laughs> Made you me better so go happy to your other though. friends. Yeah, you do love sports. I appreciate that about you. Yeah. And um, there were re- in recent months, uh, two athletes from with Caucasus origins have kind of hit the international world stage in the respective sports. And it's got me excited. I want to talk about it. It's the, um, it's like, you know, they talk about media and our, our culture being post, you know, post truth. This is like post Habib, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like life go. after Habib. Yeah. So we'll start with, that's a good transition. We'll start with, uh, kind of wrestling, grappling, kind of the MMA, UFC, um, domain. So typically, Eli, if you're thinking about uh, fighters like Habib coming out of the North Caucasus and doing well competitively, what republic are they probably going to be from? Dagestan? That's right. And rightfully so, you should think of Dagestan. Um, that's where the majority of wrestlers, whether it's freestyle or Greco-Roman, and yep. especially now kind of in the UFC fighting world, that's really where they're making a name for themselves. It's just like the mug I saw online that uh, on the side it said straight out of Dagestan. <laughs> nice. Yeah. But recently, um, a um, gentleman from the North Caucasus making a name for himself in the UFC is not from Dagestan. His name doesn't sound Dagestani. Yeah. He is from Ingushetia. Uh-huh. Uh, his name is Mofsar Yevloyev. Yevloyev. Um, Wow. Yeah, yeah. The announcer, I, I saw one of his uh, fights, and the announcer was butchering it, saying Evloyev. Or is it? That's uh, how it Ev- looks. Ev- yeah, yeah, yeah. But Yevloyev, um, but Mofsar is really—he's undefeated. He's thirteen and zero. Um, oh, what weight really class? Has, he's featherweight, so like hundred forty-five okay. pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but boy, he's actually really fun to watch. He kind of has a good combination of the boxing and the wrestling, and. Uh, the word I would use to describe him is wily. Ooh. Yeah, because like there's been multiple times different opponents have like thought they had him in a chokehold or had him like almost close to being pinned, and he like so deftly slithered his way out of it and got on his feet so quickly. Like the announcers every time <laughs> were like, "Look at those skills." <laughs> Wily it is then. I, I, that you've said slithered, deft, wily. <laughs> I'm hooked. I want to, I want to watch this guy. <laughs> I feel like we're talking about Harry Potter or something. Slithering. Um, yeah, right. yeah. But, uh, anyways, he's from Sunja, which is one of the kind of five, not towns or villages, but, you know, cities in Ingushetia. Yeah. And, uh, keep an eye on him. Like, I think it's a good reminder. Uh, this really is a Caucasus wide sport. Yeah, uh, and I think probably over the next couple of years we're going to see more guys like him um, cropping up. So, shout out to Movsar Yevloev and Ingushetia. And then this was really neat. Um, are you a tennis fan at all, Eli? I love tennis. Okay, and I mean that. Yeah. Did you play much back in the day, or well, more just you know, watching? 
No, I, I was sent to tennis camps growing up. And really all I remember are the sprints and stuff that we had to do in the, <laughs> in the you know, 100% humidity, D.C. summer sun, you know, doing suicides and stuff. But that's the thing is, you know, you, you play a sport and it in, gives you an appreciation for it for the rest of your life. So I, I will watch tennis all day. I do love tennis. Yeah, well, recently um, the first kind of – there's the big Grand Slam tournaments in tennis, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, yep. U.S. Open. And there's another one, French Open. Yeah. French Open, yep. So uh, every year is kicked off with the Australian Open. And um, first of all, props to Australia. Like they had, you know, they were kind of getting knocked on for their strict quarantines in 2020, but they had a fully attended event. I mean, there were lots of fans at it because COVID was under control. So um, one of our listeners uh, brought this to my attention, but the the men's semifinal, three of the four semifinalists were from Russia. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of them, just by looking at his name, immediately you think he's got to be from the Caucasus. His name was Aslan Karatsev. Oh, yeah. And Aslan, that's a pretty common name uh, yep. among different um, the nationalities here in the region. But so he was born in North Ossetia. Uh, in Vladikavkaz, his father is a Setian, and at age three they actually moved to Israel. Okay. So he started playing tennis there, and at age twelve moved back to Russia and really kind of got in Russia's like youth tennis systems. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I mean, really, totally out of nowhere, his story—he had not qualified for a Grand Slam tournament ever. Nine times he tried to qualify and qualified and then went on this hot streak and got all the way to the semifinals. Um, unfortunately he faced the best player in the world, Novak Djokovic, uh, who vanquished him in three sets. Like he pretty much did every, to (laughs) everyone. Yes. Vanquished Um, is a good word, but yeah, it's really cool story and kind of, uh, really told his story a little more being from Israel, but originally a Setian roots. And of course we wish him the best and we'll see how his career goes from here but man shout out to aslan karatsev um yeah well for those of you who who are still loyal um habibists um you'll be happy to know that habib has moved on um in his life from his resignation in the fall uh the first the first headline i read is that he uh purchased sheep uh Uh returning to dagestan (laughs) which is, I guess, sort of the first thing one does. Um, but I've since learned that in, in Russia, he's got his own um, mobile phone company going now. Huh. It's, it's Eagle Mobile. Okay. Um, he actually now has a smartphone workout app. Have you seen this, Andrew? I have not. It's called Octazone. And when you tap it, you can, it opens up, and you've got your personalized training with little videos of Habib doing exercises. So you can customize it to that your intensity level, to your, um, you know, and then when you start your training plan, like my, my training today would be called uh, the Polar Fox. And <laughs> it just walks you right through it here, you know, and, and you start with, it tells you what to do. Start workout and swipe left to start. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I start and then five, four, the countdown. Three, two, one. Pretty exciting. Start. Start. Skipping jumps. High knees. Okay, high 20 knees. Reps. Twenty, and then it counts me down for twenty reps. So um, wait. So do then, they show videos of Habib doing the exercises as you do them? 
Oh, yeah, you didn't see that. So there he is doing high oh, knees. That is so awesome. And so you, you see him doing his high knees. The next one is crunches. My favorite is the rests because there's videos of him resting. <laughs> Let's get some rest. And you so can just awesome. gaze at this, at this shot of him, you know, kind of hot and sweaty, lying down on his mat. Like, <laughs> oh, I am so downloading that app. I now, will only work out just to be able to just do it with to Habib. say right. So, um, you know, oh, you're looking good. Well, well, it's the Habib Octazone. So Octazone, uh, you do have to pay. Uh, okay. you, there, there's a trial, but it's it's pretty reasonable, and you know, I kind of feel like it's a good cause. So anyway, <laughs> my only feedback is why are you and I not the official voices of Octazone? Um, We'll work on it, Andrew. Do crunches. Count to 20. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we'll tell you a story. <laughs> Let's get some rest. All right. <laughs> I think That's you just a- answered your own question. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eli. But speaking um, of crunches. Here, here we go. Speaking of workouts, speaking of athletics, our topic today is none other than childbirth. Some of the best athletes we know personally. Are are coming on on the podcast? We have finally, at long last, interviewed both of our wives together about their experiences bearing and raising children in the North Caucasus. Yes, I can I ha- hear our audience. <laughs> I can hear our our listeners cheering. They're just excited for this, and they should be. It's a great interview. I have to confess, Eli. I think I've put you off on this interview for probably two years. <laughs> and the time had come where <laughs> there were no more No excuses. more avoiding it. I mean, Andrew was uncannily cool toward this idea for quite a long time. You know, in fact, I think maybe many of your good ideas were just efforts, you know, kind of survival <laughs> efforts at avoid Because, you know... I, I was looking, you'll you'll just hear, listeners, but I was looking at Andrew's face during much of this, oh and my I think it was an education for you, Andrew. <laughs> I mean, I think you, you kind of, you got grown up in this, in this interview. Listen, I'll say this. I come from a family, especially my dad's side of the family, <laughs> that is extremely private. And so I, I do think it affects sometimes how much I want to talk with others about certain topics. And so, absolutely, you I know, mean, you brought yeah, you brought the best out in that situation. Oh, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, well I'm, I I come from a family mainly on my wife's side that is not private <laughs> <laughs> about certainly about birth. So, but I, it's this is still uh, rated E for everyone. You know, this is uh, definitely. Uh, uh, <laughs> There's nothing, nothing yeah. scandalous uh, well, on the. On and the, it's one of those things. No matter where you're from, this is a common human experience. So I do think you'll enjoy uh, this interview with our wives about childbirth in the Caucasus. First ever's on our podcast. Uh, I think you might say our podcast specializes in 
first ever's unprecedented events on an each release basis. <laughs> All this is history. Eli, this is our first ever fireside chat. It's a lot of things. <laughs> first of all, it's our first recording in person since 2019. Yes. So Andrew and I are sitting. We are barely socially distanced right now. <laughs> I mean, there's like seven feet. Six feet us. and one inch, no yeah, more. Exactly. That's the first one. Okay. Second of all. We are in the United States together, not in Russia. In our cozy dacha in the North Carolina mountains. Third, we're in a dacha in the North Carolina mountains. <laughs> it's not our cozy dacha, it's my parents' cozy dacha. And fourth, we're by a fireside. Oh, and one more thing. Both of our wives are here and we're interviewing them for the Hello. first time ever. Welcome. Yes. Welcome back to the podcast, my wife and your friend. Christy Slate. Hey guys. And I actually, I want to say, I think Christy as our most has been in our guest, a guest the most times on our podcast. More than me. Yeah. And for the first time, welcome to the caucus talk studio. Eli's wife, Holly. Hi guys. We also have um, an infant on the floor and seven children in the basement. <laughs> so we'll just see how this goes. Oh no, my no promises. goodness. So Andrew, let's get into it. What are we here to talk about? Let me guess. Something all about men, right? <laughs> <laughs> we uh we are the experts on this topic, not. Um yes, we are we have brought our wives onto the, the podcast to talk about child birth and child rearing in the North Caucasus. And this will hopefully range. I mean, it may, it's of course they're going to they have a, a insight through their own relationships and fr- and friendships about like caucuses, birth and child rearing. But then, of course, they bring the unique perspective of expat uh, women, for- foreigner women in the North Caucasus, yes. doing both of those things. Yes, your your resumes actually, your credentials are quite quite impressive, Christy and Holly. Your personal credentials of raising children and giving birth in the Caucasus. <laughs> So why don't we start? I, w- I actually want you to uh, present your child rearing and childbirth credentials to our audience, uh, <laughs> so they so they know so they know this is uh, legit. Uh, so Christy, let's start with you. Okay. Well, Holly has way more credentials with me than me in terms <laughs> no, no, of the childbirth category. <laughs> okay. So I we have three kids. I did not give birth to any of them in the North Caucasus. They uh-huh. were all, we flew back to the States to give birth to them. And then I am weeks away from birth with baby number four, and baby number four will also be born in the U.S. But I yes. have six years of experience of raising kids in the North Caucasus. That is amazing. I'm just going to clap again because yes. it's just awesome. I think it's uh, fine to say that one of our children was conceived in the Caucasus. <laughs> Or two. <laughs> two, actually. Keep working on that, Andrew. Everyone Conception, wants to know. childbirth, and child rearing. <laughs> We're going to leave the first one out of the episode. <laughs> no one needs to hear about that. Give me uh, explanation. Email uh, Andrew personally. Yes. All right. Well, Holly, why don't you sh- uh, throw down your credentials? Well, the only credential necessary is that I am a woman. Ooh. <laughs> 
but things are getting hot in here and it's not just that fire. Ooh. <laughs> Eli and I have five children now. We just had our fifth child in September. 2020, yep. And I have given birth once in the North Caucasus. And I've been pregnant twice in the North Caucasus. And I've about four years of experience raising children in the North Caucasus. Right. And you've midwifed. And I... I have a bachelor's degree in midwifery, and I have been a midwife for expats in the North Caucasus. So there we go. Yeah. Amazing credentials. And yeah, I mean, you'll share about this, but you are kind of a part of a uh, midwifery community, right, in the North Caucasus. Local people who do that help people give birth, correct? Uh, At least have relationships. Yeah, you could say that. I'm a part of a community of women who give birth at home okay. in Dagestan specifically. And I do have some connections with other birth workers in the North Caucasus. Gotcha. Cool. Good stuff. Well, uh, like you said, you're a woman and we're not. Um, <laughs> so I'm a little unsure where to start with childbirth. So maybe you got, of course I've heard lots of stories. Why don't we have you start uh, in your experience? Um, especially hearing from your friends who have given birth in the North, North Caucasus. And then Holly, you gave birth yourself. Uh, maybe talk about what are some of the strengths of uh, that process in the region? Um, maybe how it differentiates from here in the U S maybe let's start with that. We'll get the conversation going. So I can share some stories. So I haven't obviously given birth myself in the North Caucasus, but I have a mom's group. Um, where we meet with moms and talk about child rearing every month. Um, and obviously when you get a group of moms together, the topic of childbirth comes up very often and people often share their stories. As with when men get together. And, um, it happens. <laughs> Just saying. So it's, it's really, really different. The whole system is really different. Um, Holly can share more about like the women who give birth at home. Most of my friends have given birth in hospital settings um, in the hospital settings where we are, normally it's six women to a room giving birth at the same time in one room. Um, husbands are not allowed anywhere nearby. Um, oftentimes the husbands will wait outside the window, like they'll wait outside the hospital window. And after the babies are born, the wives are allowed to like hold the baby up to the window. The oh my. Husbands aren't allowed, aren't allowed in the building. I mean, do they ever get passed through just sort of like a drive up, you know, just <laughs> no, pick up the normally kid and it's keep like, going? You know, second, third story. Like. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So let, let's, so when we talk about hospital, what are we talking about here? Just like when, if, if Westerners are listening to this, is it pretty much the same deal as a, a hospital you find in Western Europe or the U.S.? It's more like a, uh, like a maternity ward, like a maternity ward in the U.S., except it's its own building. It's its own hospital. They call them birth houses, but it's not a house. It's a hospital. Okay. And the difference is, obviously, another big difference is you're not in a room by yourself. You're in this, like, I mean, kind of imagine, like, pictures you've seen from hospitals in, like, the 1950s or 1960s. With, like, a bunch of beds against the wall. a bunch of beds against the wall in a row. Are there curtains, do you think? I don't think so. I don't think so. We're all women here. Why would there be curtains, right? <laughs> but my friend said she was so jealous of the women who were giving birth around her if they gave birth, like, 
quicker than her. <laughs> like they're all giving birth at the same time. And uh, she, every time somebody else would, you know, have a baby envy. born. It's interesting. I would think that that would actually help people to birth faster because now, the why hormones would, you say that? would be flowing in the room. And so. See, this reminds me, this was when I, before I was married and knew anything about the way of women at all. I remember overhearing my older sister say that whenever they were on like a camping trip or a, or like anything with this one particular friend, as soon as she, uh, this is now PG rated, as soon as she had a period, <laughs> like everyone would follow suit immediately. There's this like alpha female thing, and and she would go like on the moon cycle, like the lunar cycle, and all became suddenly it was like it was the moon. It was the moon, and I'm like, what? I never mind, and uh, yeah, I was college something so i learned that so but this is a thing like midwives really pay attention to full moon because <laughs> it's kind of true that women tend to give birth on full moons i wow. don't know why that is exactly first time i'm hearing scientifically this. but andrew we haven't hung out enough because i would bring that up if we were you know sitting around <laughs> chatting uh, just us men but anyway <laughs> so you think that this might actually help could could all right could not. I don't necessarily think it's great to be in being watched by other people, though. So now, Christy, would your friend? What kind of support would they have? Obviously, in birth, support is huge. None. That that's a big difference. Is there aren't like doulas or other? You know, you don't have your husband there. It's the nurses, and there's typically a culture of. You know, suck it up, be strong. They don't do epidurals. Oh. There's like, I have multiple friends who were told, like, if you yell in childbirth, it could kill your baby. Like, I mean, it's very, like, <laughs> oh my. Yeah, they're pretty against yelling. Yeah. Um, so, wait a minute. Let's just, I just want to rewind the tape real quick. <laughs> they don't do epidurals. Did I hear that right? That's correct. Like, in the North Caucasus. Not typically from what, I mean, you can't even, it's not even like a paid option. I'm sure you could pay for, you can pay for a lot of stuff. No, you could get one, uh, but they would probably do other drugs, intravenous drugs. Okay. So we've got six, some ladies all in a room, no husbands, no doulas, and all just sweating it out together. And then, and you know, in, in in movies and stuff, the woman gets, you know, in in a U.S. hospital, let's say, gets wheeled away to the delivery room when it's her time. So, anything like that here, or does it all just happen in one room? My understanding is they stay together. Is that your understanding? Usually, sure. there's a delivery room, I think, and oh, um, I don't know exactly because it, my a friend in Dagestan told me that there were there was like one delivery table and. When you were ready to give birth, you went to the table in the room of women. So and if there's I don't a queue, really you just that up is. And I've never been in a road dome, so I wish everyone could see. House. I wish everyone could see Andrew's body language right now. <laughs> I should. I should ask my friends who know. Stretching it out, knees crossed, arms crossed, shoulders up, Obai's ears. Sort says of everything. A little bit of a grimace on his face. <laughs> <laughs> now, Andrew, have you been present for your for your deliveries, your wife's all three labor yeah, and deliveries? Going to be for this one, okay? Yeah, like right there by your side. What role would you say you play <laughs> in in the delivery? Do um, tell. Husband coached childbirth. La- no coaching involved. Uh, <laughs> trying husband smacked. trying to be supportive. Lots of praying uh-huh. for sure. That okay. um, yeah. That's a good role. Andrew basically is prayer support. 
<laughs> yeah, but I will say that's uh, I've talked with my some of my Caucasus uh, male friends, and none of them have been to the birth of any of their children. So, like for them, it blew their minds that that's normal in the U.S. Blew their minds in which dimension of like, holy moly, you guys are weirder and like, or like, why would freakier. you do that? Yeah, why would you do that? Yeah. Not like, oh, that's so admirable. Yeah. And what do you say? Why would you do that? Oh, I just, I mean, for us the, in the U.S., that's normal. You yeah. know, it's it's expected. So. It's just something you laugh about, like many differences. Now, this came up today. If I'm just going to interject, Holly, you mentioned to me that you learned something about Islamic prayer and birth recently that you were reading. Um, yeah. I, so in Dagestan, a lot of women, not, I, I don't, I wouldn't say the majority of women, but um, women who tend to be more Muslim. How do you say that? More, more religious. <laughs> Maybe more devout. More religious, yeah. yeah. Um, may give birth at home more often. And um, in their prepara- preparations for birth, I was reading this article from a group I'm in, um, and they encourage you to do more prayer leading up to birth to incur- to be more, um, I can think of Russian words, um, confident in your uh-huh. ability to give birth and in Allah's like help. grace or help to get you through it. Huh. So that's that's really interesting. That's an interesting facet that the women are are taught, and they're taught by like an imam or or like a, a religious leader of some sort to to pray pray this way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there. There are different types of prayer. I think in Islam, there's kind of prayer where you're just asking for requests, right. normal requests, and then there's prayer for wisdom, and there's and they're they're they have different names. I've had to in order to be in this group, I've had to learn some Arabic in order to understand it. So I don't know the ins and outs of this, but um, I do know that they pray specifically. Another thing they do to prepare is they read um, the story of Jesus's birth in the Quran. No kidding. Uh Uh-huh. That's another thing that they're encouraged to do. Well, it's Um, probably the only birth story in the Quran. It is the only birth story in the Quran. I have to cross-check that. But So, I mean, this is like, this is a great example. Like when you get into birth, you get into a cross-section of, like, every area of life. And we could go from, like, religion to cosmetics to food and, you know, to, like, transfer. I mean, yeah. it, it touches everything. And it would be really interesting to, like, look at other religious practices around birth, of which obviously there are a lot, you know. But just bringing up prayer, all of a sudden we're in a deep dive yeah, into That was really interesting. That's kind of yeah, a different angle. All right. What about, I want to touch, Christy, you mentioned the kind of collective hospital room or maternity room, six moms. Am, am I right? Like, this is like, I mean, basically they're, they're there a week or two together, right? A week? And it's, it basically forms the foundation of a lifelong friendship for some of them. Yeah, That's what so I've heard. It, d- it depends. Normally moms stay, like, in the hospital longer in Russia. I mean, it can range from a couple days Post-birth. to... Post-birth. Post-birth. Oh, yeah. How, yeah. how soon before birth? Do they go when they're in labor? Like, like Normally you, they go when they're in, in labor, labor okay. unless there's some sort of like issue where they want to okay. monitor you and stuff. Um, and so then, I mean, it depends how your birth goes, how long you'll stay afterwards. Sometimes it's only a couple of days, sometimes, which still is long by U.S. standards. Sure. Um, huh. One of my good friends had twins, and she ended up staying 18 days after her twins were born, even though wow. they were totally healthy just because... Just because they wanted to monitor just because it was twins. Twice the fun. But this is, it really is, I mean, a lifelong bonding experience of giving birth in this room with these women. And then you spend your first couple days postpartum 
in this room with these women. And I know, I mean, for me, after giving birth, like Andrew was super helpful even more after the birth than mm-hmm. during the actual birth. Because I was, you know, having a hard time moving around and he would pick up the baby or change the diaper Actually or do it. could contribute something practical yes. to the situation. Yes. Um, <laughs> whereas these women are in this room together and they can really only help each other because there isn't, wow. there aren't really people to help them in that room. And so I was at a birthday party a couple of weeks ago for one of my friends who has three kids and two of the women in, at her birthday party were women who had given birth in the room with her, one with her second child who's like eight or nine years old now, and they're still friends eight or nine years later. That's amazing. After having given birth together, you know, and just been in this room together for a couple days, and then she has an almost one-year-old. And another lady who came to her birthday party was a lady that she had given birth in the same room with with the almost one-year-old. And so it really does build this, like, bonding experience. The other really funny thing for me is... None of them wish that their husbands could have attended their births. See, I wanted to get into that because so much of this d- relates to expectations culturally. Yeah. yeah. You know, what we hear maybe from a Western ear is like different, strange, or a deficit, or like, oh, what's that going to be like? That's only because we have a certain reference point. Mm. But like you said, the dads are like, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's I not was... true with home birth necessarily. Uh-huh. The, in Dagestan, a lot of the women who give birth at home will have maybe one person present with them, and that's often their husband. Really? Not always, um, but often. Huh. Wow. Well, in Dagestan, where you do have often more a more devout uh, Islamic orientation, for a woman to be sent to a, a hospital where there may be a male doctor is a consideration. I've heard. Like, oh, why? You know, you wouldn't. She, you know, you wouldn't want her being examined by like another man, basically. Whereas yeah. in the U.S., that's sort of a different kind of. I don't know if that's everything, but that's that's part of it. Huh. Wow. So there's a whole opportunity here for male men, like doula training. Well, and I think the reason historically, this goes away from like maybe necessarily just the North Caucasus, but as Americans, historically, why we want men with us when we give birth is because hospital or birth moved to the hospital from the home. And then women were alone and there was the potential for the hospital staff to do things they didn't want done to them. And so in the, when the kind of birth revolution took place in America and people started going back to home birth, women actually handcuffed themselves to their husbands when they went to the hospital because they wanted their husbands to be there to support them and to, and to see their babies be born. So now in the hospitalized age, I think a lot of, I think especially the former Soviet union tends to be, more in the like America was pre birth revolution, right. pre you know sixties, seventies, but more years. medicalized, more hospital centric, and in that way. And I wonder about this. I mean, it's definitely a male dominated field for the. I think for the most part in the U.S. Is that true in hospitals? I don't women think so. Give birth. Are there male doctors there? Like There's every gynecologist some, I've ever met, an women. Okay, it women. makes plenty of sense. So. Yeah. So they make these lifelong friendships and go to each other's birthday parties and stuff. Um, do you feel, and so you've seen both sides through experientially giving birth in the U S and then witnessing this. Do you ever feel like any you lack or miss not having any, that kind of experience, either of you? 
See what I'm asking? Yes, that's who you're asking. No. But no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it may be more like people who have been hostages don't, together. Don't They're care like to elaborate, life, Ali. You know? <laughs> I mean, well, may- I will say I am lifelong friends with people who have attended my births. But I wouldn't want to ever give like birth children. in the hospital. But that's because I've had four of my five children at sure. home. But you wouldn't want to give that. birth in an American hospital either. No. No. And I guess I'm saying, like, <laughs> do you feel like there's something missing in the Western American model um, for the women's community? I would rather make my friends somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> just like, let's do a book club and I'll just go have my baby in the hospital. I do, th- I do think women in America don't have as much support around birthing and child rearing as they should. And that there's a lot more competition to prove that you're a good mom or to prove that, you know, if you gave birth without an epidural, people are like, Oh, whoa. And it's not really about proving anything. I mean, the fact that babies come out of women's bodies is enough to prove that that's awesome. It doesn't matter how it happens, but, um, but I do think, yeah, there's more competition and, and kind of less just camaraderie in, and oh, being women wow. together. I have a feeling our listeners right now have just had a succession of, wait, what did she say? Wait, they do what? Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, I just learned so much. And our, our I podcast- I have a feeling all your listeners right now are women. <laughs> <laughs> the men have turned it <laughs> off. <laughs> At the 15 minute mark, our listenership dropped by half. We're uh, doing some research into that phenomenon to find out- <laughs> Now, uh, when you look at childbirth, something I've heard a lot about and noticed, uh, pre-childbirth and post-childbirth, pre-childbirth, you have bed rest, right? Uh, if a woman like is preparing and maybe she needs, if there's any like worry of sickness. Post-child- you about in the North Caucasus? Yeah, mm-hmm. in, in general, but things I've noticed in the North Caucasus. Then post-childbirth, there's maternity leave. Uh, how long you stay at home after your work? or before you go back to work. So I know with maternity leave, this is like a huge world of difference from how it is in the U.S. Can you guys address any big differences or similarities between the bed rest uh, and kind of how women, pregnant women are treated pre-birth and then the maternity leave situation post-birth? Well, I don't, I can't speak so much to what um, it's like, what it's like in the North Caucasus for women like bed rest and all of that or or even postpartum too much except that um I know that there is a little more family relationship going on in the in in like supporting each other through life events and things so but in the US um I would say there it's pretty rare to be put on bed rest uh-huh. in the US um whereas and, it's pretty common in Russia, like any sign of anything, they'll put you on bed rest. Right. And postpartum, I mean, for women who give birth in the hospital, especially in the U.S., it's just a day or sometimes less, depending on the hospital, Um, sometimes more if there are complications. But it's very little time in the hospital. And then generally you don't have support at home. You maybe get in a good situation four months 
off from work of maternity leave and right. people kind of expect you, it goes back to that kind of competition thing, expect you to like be back into life right away mm-hmm. wow. and, you know, post on your Instagram, look at me, I'm out at the store by myself with the new baby and the three other kids or something. And that's <laughs> like a, a mark of true womanhood if you can do that. And I think that comes from that lack of support that American mm-hmm. women tend to have. Whereas I think in other countries, there's a little bit more in, 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 country, in place like the North Caucasus, there's more family involvement. So maybe mothers will come and help mm-hmm. a little bit afterwards. I don't know. Maybe Christy knows more about the postpartum. Yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely true. I mean, for my friends, a lot of times their their moms or their mother-in-laws will come and like cook for them for the few weeks after the baby's born and right. help around the house or help with their other kids. Um, maternity leave... I'm so jealous of Russian maternity leave. I mean, in the U.S., I think it's officially six weeks, right? It's like six weeks know. paid, and then you can take your... another six weeks unpaid if you want. Um, in Russia, it's 18 months of paid maternity leave. Wow. Oh, so I, th- I thought it was longer than that. So. so it's 18 months of paid maternity leave. Uh, a year and a half. And then another 18 months, up till your kid's three, of unpaid optional maternity leave. Gotcha. So... So I mean, you can keep your job for that long, even if your job's not allowed to find a long-term replacement for you. Right. Um, wow. So they can just get like a temp to fill your role for that time. Now, obviously, like they're not paying you a giant salary during yeah. those eighteen months of sure. of unpaid leave, but it's enough for. I mean, most of the women I know, what they do is their kids' first eighteen months of life, they stay home with them. And then Russia has a fabulous government preschool system that starts when kids are 18 months old. Right. And so you can, and it's, it's all day and they feed your kids and it's really inexpensive and it's typically, typically decent quality. And they teach them Russian, which we really like. When we <laughs> Great Russian, really nice. t- Russian teachers there. Come out with really good accents. <laughs> yeah. So, so and women can have another baby and start again. <laughs> have another three years of maternity. Leave. Yeah. Pile it up. But my American friends, they have this, like, terrible scramble of trying to figure out, like, okay, I have paid maternity leave from the first six weeks after my baby's born, and then I have to figure out childcare on my own until kindergarten, and it's either an expensive private daycare or trying to hire a nanny. It's just really, really stressful. Whereas Russia, they have this great system set up of 18 months of paid maternity leave, you're home with your kid for a whole year and a half, and then there's a good, you know, preschool option available, sure. or you can stay home till your kid's three, if, you know? So. Yeah, so this, this is a good segue. You guys both mentioned like more family support, um, hearing from the youngest, um, youngest one over there, giving a <laughs> shout out, making her presence known. Uh, but so Christy, what you're referring to this scramble to figure out childcare is because in America, almost all families are individual family units husband, wife, and their kids. They usually live in their own place. And so, um, whereas in the Caucasus, there are many households, especially like uh, in the, you know, the people's native to the region, Dagestanis and Chechens and Kabardians. Most households are three-generation households, grandparents, parents, kids. And so from the moment that child is born, uh, they're not only being raised by their parents, but also the grandparents are really involved. Would you, would you agree with that, Christy? Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
in like Russia, Russia, that's not as much the case. Right. But definitely within the North Caucasus republics, that's that's certainly the case. Obviously, there are pros and cons that come yeah. with that. Like you have a lot of support with your kids, but then also there's, you know, I have a lot of friends who there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen for, you know, the parents might no. want to raise their kids one way, but the grandparents think it should be done a different way. And It's interesting. In the Atlantic, uh, recently, I don't know exactly when, David Brooks wrote an article and the, the headline was something in effect of the nuclear family was a mistake in American culture. Oh, interesting. And he talks about basically there are no, there's no like, I haven't read the whole thing, but <laughs> there, are no, there are no shock absorbers. You know, if one part breaks, wow. the whole thing like, grinds to a halt and so there's incredible pressure the the flip side though we have to say i mean everything is embedded in this constellation of values all our choices that we make the flip side is incredible autonomy which is the essential american uh value if there ever was one or maybe western value is individuality autonomy um uh kind of the freedom idea in that sense uh you know it's 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 a Good question. Like, how, how can you evaluate the trade-off? But that is what you kind of what you pay for. Um, we're bringing in some some foley sound effects of kind of family household sounds. Somebody, somebody caroling at the door. No, is it's just to give sort of the effect of what some families could sound like when all four parents are podcasting. And the other children. You have two toddler boys. Uh, are we still recording right now? <laughs> We're recording, baby. Can you Let's. Hear her? All right, we'll just pause. We'll pause. Yeah, just pause game. <laughs> Andrew has just said, "Everybody, chill out." Uh, while um, the carolers left. <laughs> While we have a second, we're in a little transition. I think it would be great just to take an opportunity for you, Holly, to share a little bit about your birth experience because that is definitely unique. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would love to know what it was like. Great. Um, Well, interestingly, all the expat women, well, not all of them, but three American women that I knew, including myself, we're all pregnant at the same time in the North Caucasus. So we had our own little community Uh group going on there. But um, yeah, I had our fourth child, Arthur, at home in Pitygorsk when we lived there. Um, And I had some local midwives who were Russian um, to attend me. I... Didn't it wasn't quite like American uh, home birth? Mid the the one I'm speaking of has come and sat in my lap now. Can you say hi, Arthur? Hi. His, his ears were itching. Yeah, they sure were. Um. So I had. Uh, I also had uh, my doula friend Olga, who speaks a little English, because at the time I didn't speak a whole lot of Russian. Um. So that was helpful to have her present with me. Oh. And Eli was there, and then one of the midwives came. Um, and, yeah, it was it was a great experience. Um, he was actually born in our bathtub, which was not planned. 
Um, uh, with with water in it. With water, water in it. My other kids, my my two previous births were in the U.S. in a home birth setting where you have this big tub, and so I was like, oh, the bathtub. I don't know that I want to get in there. It's kind of small and cramped. But then I decided I wanted to, um, and I had Eli put in some sea salt that I bought at the store, but. I would, he was getting ready and, and I was in labor land as we sometimes say, just kind of not paying attention, not able to tell what was going on around me. And he said that the water was ready. And so the midwife and I went over to the bathroom and I started to get in and, and she said, what's in the water? And I looked down in the water and there's all this black stuff stuff in the water oh, oh my she's like what is that and i was like it doesn't matter because i just wanted <laughs> to get in but then she and the the doula found the uh package of salt and it turned out i had bought salt that had seaweed in it <laughs> and i was like oh seaweed that stuff's like natural and healthy it's okay we'll just, just i just gotta get in there okay. anyway it was a really healthy and uneventful <laughs> birth basically well one thing was that the midwife she so so midwives tend to agree that women give birth better in the dark and in quiet and so we had you know a few candles but the main light in the bathroom was off but the midwife kept putting the candles out so it would be darker (laughs) so it was like really dark in the bathroom so i don't know that anybody could see anything but um, we thought there was a baby in there somewhere groping around for it so the baby was born, and uh, we, our good friend was there in case the kids woke up, because this did happen at night. Um, and so I told her to go get all the kids, and they all came and were you know, still half asleep and couldn't figure out why these strange people were in her, yeah. their house and uh, what, why mom was in the bathtub and everybody was looking at her, and it was dark out and... So they went back to bed, and we explained it all in the morning. <laughs> but great. it was a great experience. And did your neighbors make any comments about the noise, like no. after the fact? No, nope. And I was not quiet. Well, one neighbor was rarely there, and the downstairs neighbor was Balkar. So maybe he totally understood. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Holly. There's more to be shared, but it's always great to hear birth stories. I have to say. For our listeners who maybe weren't expecting Holly's birth story, so uh, <laughs> what would you would you say for our listeners who are not from the U.S.? Is it uh, maybe what percentage of people give birth at home in Russia? No, in the U.S. In the U.S., uh, there's probably about two percent. So okay, so yeah, less common. And maybe, Chris- maybe a little more than two percent now. I don't know. It's really growing from what I understand, kind of the home birth culture in the U.S. Yeah, interestingly, COVID really bumped up the home birth option ah. because women had fewer options right. in hospitals and, and husbands weren't always allowed in. And so I know a lot of women who were planning to give birth in hospitals switched to home birth. Is this becoming more common in Dagestan? Like you mentioned, you're a part of a community of people who give home birth. Um, that's a good question. I don't know how common it has continued to be, if this is a resurgence of home birth or if it's a continuation. Um, but I, I am a part of a chat group of several hundred women, and wow. women are joining and leaving all the time, so I don't know how many exactly. But 
who talk about giving birth. They sometimes have even given birth and while sending messages to the chat group <laughs> because they're alone at home giving Man, birth and wow. they want to make sure everything's okay. And so, um, I don't really advise anyone to give birth at home alone. Uh, you should always have somebody there with you to help you. But, um, some of these women do choose that. So there's that. Wow. There we go. Man. More on birth. There's always more There's birth always. when I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> but All right. we can move on. <laughs> Thank you, ladies, for sharing your experiences. I know there is a lot more. Um, and more keep coming into the room. So <laughs> I think we should press on to the second half of our conversation. Where we actually can contribute something. Because we're men. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Um, and the second half, we want to talk not only about birth. Again, this is always just scratching the surface, but we want to talk about child rearing. Um, so I had kind of an opening question. Um, how would you women contrast the overall cultural attitude toward children and no, children, not in family. Yeah, children and families um, between the U.S. and the North Caucasus? Well, Russians and I think people in the North Caucasus really legitimately love and treasure kids. I think even probably to a greater degree than Americans. I mean, Americans, like, you know, like like kids and... um, (laughs) Okay. I would say definitely to a greater degree. But Russians and and people in the North Caucasus tend to really dote on children... Um, and pay a lot more attention to them than, than is paid. I think in the U S I mean, I think Andrew's shared stories on the podcast of like grandma's seeing our kids out their six story window and like throwing candy down to them (laughs) and stuff like that. And no, I was walking home with my kids from Sadiq one day and I hear this person yelling out the window and saying, Girl, girl, which is what they how they call women. They they don't call you a woman because that sounds like old woman apparently. So calling calling me girl, and I'm like, who is talking to me? And I have my kids. I'm bringing them home from kindergarten, and I look up and I oh, there's this old lady like hanging out her window trying to get my attention. So I I walk over there and she says, I have something for you. I'm like. What? Is it ticking? (laughs) Okay. And she says, just wait here. And she goes away from the window. Day in the life. Comes back and throws down (laughs) from her window this hand-sewn doll blanket and pillow for my daughter. And she said, it's a gift. It's a gift. And I was just like shocked. Uh, I mean, this would never happen in America. Grandma, what you working on? Oh, I'm just sewing blankets for passersby who I can (laughs) throw at them when when I see them. Normal. Typical. Oh, man. Yeah, I think to add on to what Christy said, too, it's such a normal part of conversation that people talk about the value of children and how important they are in the Caucasus. That's true. They talk about it all the time. That is a great observation. And, and it's they in their ask about them. I was just saying to you guys, whenever, if uh, I've been paying my, uh, whenever I pay my landlord or if I have to talk to her about anything, she's Dagestani. 
I mean, if, the, if she leaves me two voice messages and they're more than an hour apart, each voice message starts with, Hello, Elias, how are you? How is your wife? How are your children? I hope they're healthy. I mean, like, yeah. that's 4 o'clock, 5.05. It's like, hello, I hope your children are healthy. <laughs> like, yeah, everybody's good. <laughs> but it, it's part of the... Like the speech habit, because yeah. it is this deep value. Yeah. And we, I mean, New Year's was not long ago. And I mean, that is the time of well wishing yeah. in, in the Caucasus. Uh, just, you know, happy. It's not just Happy New Year. You know, there's lots of well wishing, but the big percentage of them are very focused on yeah, our children. So it's interesting. Our kids have gotten so used to living in a culture where children are treasured that it's weird for them to be someplace where they're not like the center of everyone's attention. Even riding public transportation uh-huh. on trams, everyone always gives up their seats for kids. And so we, a couple hmm. summers ago, went to Prague and we got on trams there and people just kept their seats. And my kids were like, Mom, what are they doing? <laughs> they're kids. They're supposed to give us their seats. Disgusted. <laughs> I've always hated Czech culture. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and pregnant women too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember being pregnant and just being surprised that everybody would get up and let me sit down. Oh, and they let you go to the front of any line. Yeah. Like no matter what store you're in. That makes makes being pregnant in the North Caucasus worth it. You just cut to the front of every line. It's like, that's that's why you should do it. Well, and then people... (laughs) tell you well done for having children which i've oh, never heard that in america wow so yeah, holly you've that's said a good point. several times that one of your favorite days was um women's day which we mentioned here before and it's international women's day not very not very widely celebrated in the u.s but huge in europe and yeah. russia it's huge women's day march 8th and uh holly went walking through the park with your four children yeah well, and just beaming with pride and well, Frank- I, I I started to cross a street and this like this the first person was like, "Wow, are these all your children?" That's always what I hear. Are they all yours? And I said, "Yes, they are." <laughs> <laughs> and they said, "Well done, well done." And I said, "Yes, well done, good job, Holly, for having all these." I mean, children. they're definitely. I mean, we, it's easy to get down your own culture. They're definitely. I mean. Like everyone loves their own children and loves, you know, but there's definitely people who would think that's great. But in the U.S., you might as well get like a. People are like, do you know how birth control works? I like, know you get oh, like yeah, snide remarks like, one that's hear. one way to live your life. You know and, where those things come from, right? <laughs> 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 anyway, there's a lot to be said on that, but it is nice to have such a uh, universally positive vibe in the North Caucasus. Yeah. And there's a word that people throw around with respect in the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. Uh, a family with many children. A many child. So that's family. three or more kids. Uh, yeah, you actually like officially bonuses. get like document status. If you have three or more kids, yeah. you get official document, you apply for official document status for it and you get like discounts to movie theaters. You get bonuses in different places. And you're um, a hero. Well, we do need to mention this. I don't know if it's come up in the <laughs> podcast, but we, when we were in classes, our teachers would call Holly Geroina Mama, like a heroine mother, you know, a wow. mother who's a hero, a heroine. Yeah. And we're like, oh, that's really kind. And people kept saying that phrase, we're like, oh, I guess that's just a phrase. Come to find out, 
uh, something like in the Soviet Union, there was an actual medallion, wow. a metal medallion that you would get awarded if you had a certain number of children. But in the Soviet Union, it was like seven kids, and they've gradually reduced it to three or something. But now it's three. (laughs) That means that some women were motivated enough to get a medallion to actually have more children. Like somehow that factored in. Anyway, so that was an official like status, Um, and so now it's any like more than two. No, there was there was a time in our class where at that time I had three children and another mom in the class had three children and there was a mom in the class who had one child, I think, or maybe two. And the teacher was like, Oh, you guys, you're heroes. And then, well, not you yet. (laughs) 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 She did straight up like straight face. So, well, you're not no filter. You'll get there. (laughs) No filter, no medallion. Oh, that's (laughs) hilarious. Uh, so I, we definitely mentioned this before, but, I think the average number of children in Russia, typically Russian families have two kids. Um, some or have one. one. Yeah. Some have one. Some have two. Uh, but the, like seven years apart. Right. It's usually seven or eight years apart. And the highest, you know, Russia has is comprised of 89 states or republics. The highest birth rate in all of Russia is in Dagestan, Chechnya, and Ingushetia, the North Caucasus. Um. Um, and that's why we moved there. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to fit right in. Uh, kindred spirits. Yes. Um, but in general, from what I understand, it's probably cause they're more devout in their, uh, religious devotion. Uh, that's kind of always been the case in the North Caucasus. Um, but yeah, so we, we've also, people have responded very positively to us with having three kids. Um, as well. It's nice. Yeah. I like this question. What are some cultural differences between cultural no-nos or maybe yes-yeses also in, in with little children or child rearing between U.S. culture, your home culture, and what you see in the North Caucasus? Well, one thing well, I'm sure you've talked about, the thing that jumps to mind first and foremost is how you dress your children. Like in the U.S., you don't tell somebody else how to dress their child or that their child is underdressed or overdressed or whatever. But I mean, just imagine being on the playground and, and another, even somebody you know, just being like, oh, he needs more clothes. Like that would, that could end a friendship, right? Well, I did want to say that to one of my friends once after living in the North Caucasus for four years. And I went home and the kid was kind of whimpering. And I was like, he's obviously cold. You should put more clothes on him. And I caught myself, though. Can't join him, beat him. So, I mean, you can't beat him, join him. <laughs> Said that the wrong way. <laughs> Let's not have any beating happening. <laughs> I mean, in telling people to put clothes on their kids. That didn't come across how I intended it, did it? That's all right. <laughs> Lived in Russia so long, we're messing up our American idioms. So, you were saying? You just, you have to have your kid fully dressed for the elements. Yeah. Yes. It's really funny because places like Minnesota or something like that, I feel like it, they're used to it being cold there, but they tend to kind of underdress their kids. But where where we live in the Caucasus, like, it's not that cold 
typically, I mean, it's kind no. of probably like Pennsylvania weather or something like that. Well, but in he, Dagestan and Mahachkal, it's, yeah, it's not way temperate. cold at all, practically. But people wrap their, I mean, they literally have a term for it as like wrapping your kids. Yeah. And they put crazy amount of layers on kids. Until June. I mean, you know, the thing with like a, a wool hat on in the summer. If you're scanning photos of children from the North Caucasus, you'll be able to see ours because they'll be the ones that are woefully underdressed. <laughs> I remember we had just moved, we had just been in PT Gorsk a few months and we took our kids to this fountain, this like outdoor fountain, and um one of those like splash pad ones. And we let our kids who were like three and one at the time like run around in their underwear and play in the splash pad. And I have a picture, it was I think September or something. So it's probably like I don't know, maybe 70 degrees or 75 degrees, but on the calendar it was September. And Russians tend to dress by calendar and, and not... September is autumn. Yeah. And so I have this picture of R2 <laughs> in underwear running around in a splash pad and this Russian girl who's like three right behind them and she is head to toe in a snowsuit <laughs> with this like huge furry hat and she's just like looking longingly at our kids who are like in their underwear in a Poor splash kid. pad. <laughs> what was the look on the parents' face? Did you capture that? <laughs> she was with her grandma. I mean, all the parents were looking Even at our better. kids appalled. Witheringly like, disapproving. Sure they were going to get sick, that our kids were going to get sick. I will say, though, I learned how to actually dress a child warmly by living in Russia. Yeah, that's very true. Because, like, the whole scarf on the outside of the coat, to you get the hood oh, on, man. and then you put the scarf on on the outside, and it keeps the cold air from going down the coat. And, there you go. Like, I, I now you know. Nice. Secrets of child dressing. Coming to you from Caucus Talk. All right, so dressing, what else? What are some of the differences of no-nos or... Um, well, one thing I th- I've noticed when I've been with other American women at parks is that our Americanisms come out when we're all together. So I remember one time we were at a park and I realized all the Russian or Caucasus moms were like following their children on the playground and, you know, either going up on the play thing with them or standing at the bottom of the slide to catch them, helping them, holding their hand, making sure they didn't like fall to their demise. And we were all sitting in a little pagoda on the side of the playground, eating (laughs) (laughs) and yelling at our children from a distance. (laughs) Don't do that. No, go the right way down the slide. Don't walk up. And then it dawned on me that we were not Doing what was culturally acceptable. We were just trying to raise independent children. <laughs> that was not on the menu. For uh, yeah, there are definitely a lot more kind of cultural rules and expectations. I think that moms live under. I mean, American moms lived under live under different cultural rules and expectations. But there are a lot of just a lot of boundaries there in terms of obviously how you dress your kids, what you feed your kids, different things that you do to make sure that you. They don't get sick. I wonder, it's interesting you say there's more, and there may be, but I also wonder if it's not just that you are sensitive to them coming from the outside because you become aware of them, but I wonder if it's more social, socially overt and kind of socially controlled things. Like more people say more things about what you should feed your kids or how they should dress. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of that is tied into there's a lot more family involvement. And so... 
like you get the grandmas constantly telling you like your kid has to eat soup twice a day or they're gonna get sick you know? even if she's not your grandma you got the grandmas telling you <laughs> exactly well, yeah that. and there's a lot more conformity so that the common opinion tends to stand Arthur. yeah whereas in the u.s kind of everybody tends to think their own way and it's yeah. hard to even get any sort of consensus there there's a lot more like it's rare to see somebody who is away from the consensus. Whereas in the U S like it's hard to get any consensus on the flip side. Uh, you also notice the taught, I guess taught and caught cultural values coming through early on with Caucasus kids. I can think of many times I've been in a Caucasus home and a three-year-old boy, when he saw me walked in immediately jumped to his feet, strode right over to me and said the traditional Caucasus greeting, salam alaikum, and like put his hand out to shake my hand. Awesome. And you're just like in awe when you see that. Andrew's like, how do we train our kids to be so polite? <laughs> so respectful they and like polite. hide like, from strangers. <laughs> but that's, it's taught, but it's also modeled and caught, you know? And so Absolutely. there's a lot of things like that too. I think that you see from a pretty early age with, with Caucasus kids. Well, and I think the the giving advice in America, we would tend to feel that that's like judgment. Somebody's telling me I'm doing a bad job, but I've learned that in Russia and in the Caucasus, it's someone basically expressing love for you. They're they're telling that they care about you and your child. And, and maybe, yes, you're doing this a little wrong, but it's not in a judging way. It's in a, like, I want to help you. Even if they're saying, what are you doing? You're doing this wrong. (laughs) No, but it's true. I, I mean, we really, you know, like the five love languages, they need a sixth one, which is like berating. But <laughs> but it is actually a form of, of you know, care. And, and I think, I speculate that someone from that kind of context, if they came to the U.S. or came to the West and were just sort of left to their own devices, would feel unloved by the silence, you know, by people not speaking up and contributing. I don't know. But. Oh, no, I've, I've definitely interacted with a lot of uh, people from the Caucasus who have lived in the States and they've expressed kind of feeling lonely or just not being yeah. in that communal collective. Absolutely. Culture. Mother, yeah. Mother Teresa, when she, she moved her work to the U.S. at one point and opened uh, some some services in New York. And she said, and she's come from Calcutta. Remember she said, uh-huh. the U S is the most impoverished place I've ever seen relationally. Wow. And sorry guys, but it's hard, hard to argue with mother Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no talking back there. Holly, let me ask you. So you lived in Pitigorsk several years, which is uh, central Caucasus. Um, a good number of Caucasus, Caucasus nationalities live there, but, Primarily uh, a Russian city, Russian and Armenian city. Uh, then you moved to Dagestan. Were there any kind of subtle or even just really obvious differences in just kind of how child rearing happens in those places? The sheer volume of children. Ah, interesting. Was way different. Like in Pitigorsk, most people, like you said, had one or two children. Yeah. If they had two, they were really spaced out. And as like we, where we live in Mahachkala, there's a little playground in the middle of a whole bunch of apartment buildings. And there are, it's just thronged with children all the time. And so most people have three, four, 
five children mm-hmm. and if in the mountains more um i think in the city the city tends to lower the birth rate a little bit but um yeah the sheer volume of children is one of it one of those things that i noticed right away how about you eli um i would say gender roles in dagestan are very mm-hmm. clear uh-huh. and uh, pre- fairly prescribed from what I can tell. So from a young age, I mean, we felt this, I think this is true in Russia in general, that there are very clear gender roles. Boys do certain things, dress certain ways, girls do other things. But even in Pitygorsk, certainly in Moscow, you'd have a huge range. Even in Pitygorsk, there was a range of things that that our children's friends were involved in at Sadik or at uh, Shkola, at this school, you know, mm. after school activities. Um, and in Dagestan, they feel like, and we could be wrong on this, but definitely they're very limited. You know, like for boys, it's a lot of the, the sports that we've talked about, you know, yeah. wrestling, boxing, and, and uh, or sambo or whatever, right. you know. And actually, girls, I don't really know what kind of activities there are for girls, extracurricular mm curricularly it's pretty much dance or music like i've even in pt gorsk i've tried to find a soccer team our girls really want to play join a soccer team and i can only find leagues for boys yeah and so we're hoping to get them to play soccer in the u.s yeah when we're here for a couple months just because like sure. they're just limited with that in and russia my guess is that that is has a lot to do with with family values and expectations and structure like we're talking about yeah. and and that kind of stuff so that one was really clear to me because uh, we had a actually it was Pity Gorse, but he was he was from the mountains and he visited us and came over and right when he walked in he looked at our two boys who were like three and five or six mm. and he's like hmm that one he's got longer arms he'd be good for boxing <laughs> but the little one and he like did this with his hands like look at his neck he'll be good at wrestling <laughs> I was like thank you now I know. <laughs> A little bit like we're picking a horse here. Uh, well, and our, this playground that I talked about right outside our apartment, I mean, I have to sometimes not look because <laughs> I, I look out the window and all the boys are just like brawling. I mean, just for fun. They're laughing and playing, but yeah. it's like not what you would do in another Actually, place. that happened. Our very first visit to Dagestan was a summer trip for three weeks. <laughs> we got off the train and took a taxi to our uh, this Airbnb um apartment we were renting and we we're going up the steps and there are two boys just on the steps and just slugging each other and they're like six and we look around like hi scooching past what is the case and then they like get up and rock like okay and that was very different and there is a little less parental supervision i think in mahachkala than in pity course Mm-hmm. Though Certainly for, for little kids there's all like it depends on the age i think i think yeah. once you're school age you're like on your own kind of, mm. but you can go play and run around. But the littler kids always have a grandma or mom right with them all the time. Is there anything, well, this question is for all of us that you guys feel like you have actually incorporated into your parenting style, your child rearing that you've learned in the North Caucasus, or maybe you're aspiring to, because I, I can just speak from experience Making changes in how you parent is not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but like, I'm curious. Well, I think what you mentioned about boys greeting men, mm-hmm. we've definitely tried to incorporate that primarily while we're there, but um, they've kept it up even when we've come back to the States and going right to the men who is coming to the house or wow. 
and sticking their hand out and greeting them. Yeah, I would say I've become more conscious of general physical strength as a helpful thing for upkeep with our boys. Like, I don't think of my seven-year-old as someone who's supposed to be ripped and, you know, do a bunch of pull-ups or push-ups, unless he wants to. But, and I don't like, you know, I don't drive him, you know, at all. But I I guess I'm more conscious of that, and and I want to, I've taken that as a value of seeing Mm. 60-year-old men walk through the courtyard and pause to do a set of pull-ups. I mean, that's routine, you know, in in the caucuses. Uh And you're like, that's cool. You know, just sort of a general fitness that's a slightly different kind of perspective than than I have before. Mm. How about you guys? Something Mm, More candy. Off of what Holly said. (laughs) Definitely more candy. (laughs) Yeah, kids need to turn again in the caucuses. Off of what Holly said... Like once kids get to be a certain age, they really are given a lot of independence. Um, and they're, I mean, there's kind of helicopter parenting for the little kids, but once they get to be school age, they're kind of thought of as, okay, they're big kids. A lot of kids walk to and from school by their, by themselves crossing like big dangerous roads. And that's, I wouldn't necessarily do that but like our girls are six and eight and this year i started sending them to the grocery store by themselves in america i would never let my six and eight year old walk to the grocery store by themselves i mean i would probably be put in jail or like have my children (laughs) taken from me for sending them to the grocery store by themselves um now okay we live right across the like right around the corner from a little grocery store they don't cross any roads but even that level of independence they really love it and I feel like it's nice for me as a mom to be in a place where there's not that pressure to always have your eye on your kids. Like I yeah. can let them go play and not feel like everybody's going to be judging me if I'm not like constantly on top of them and watching them. Well, and that speaks to the safety of the North Caucasus too, actually, that we feel, I mean, part, I wouldn't do that in America in a lot of places because I wouldn't feel safe doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel much safer actually in Mahachkala than I do in my hometown. And I think that goes back to people really treasuring and valuing kids because you know, and, and all the grandmas watching out for everybody, like (laughs) from their windows, ready to throw blankets when the other things, but I know like if anything happened to my kids, like walking to or from the grocery store, like there would be multiple people who would get involved and help them. And that's true. And that would be a weird thing in, in our culture here, but there's a group parenting dynamic that really affects everything you do. Yeah. You know, you know that on the one hand, it could be a critical thing. People are going to tisk you and say, oh, you should do it this way or that way. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, if you, that was one of the first things that people told us when we moved to Dagestan and over and over, they're like, this is a really safe place. If you need anything, anyone will help you. I really think that's true. Mm. I think if we were in need on the street, like, you know, anyone would do what they could to help us. It's kind of part of the, the fabric of life. Yeah. That's good. I would say, uh, I have, I really have noticed how children in Cox's families are expected to really contribute and help kind of in the home at the home. Uh, a lot of families have gardens, um, yeah. Uh, cattle, uh, you know, (laughs) apple trees, whatever. And so, 
you know, boys might be actually the boys and girls both are helping outside a lot. The girls might be helping more like with cooking and stuff in the kitchen. But yeah. I mean, our best Kabardian friends, their kids are so involved in every part of their home life. And so I, I am wanting to give, we started probably the last two years started slowly giving more responsibility to our girls at home. But, uh, yeah, it's not easy, you know, but expecting that, that it would just be normal setting that expectation. I think it it comes a little bit more naturally. Like if you grew up on a farm, like yeah. the Americans I know who grew up on farms had loads of chores, you know, from a very young age, sure. whereas we live in an apartment. And so it's like, okay, you can keep your room clean and like help in the kitchen, but it's not quite as easy to involve kids. Even though, you, I mean, you still can, and we're definitely trying to. Our kids started washing the dishes this year. That was... No dishwasher, like washing the dishes. Yeah, yeah, hand washing the dishes. Small beginnings. I would also add to that that I think in the caucuses, kids are expected to basically make their own fun. Hmm. Um, like, they're hmm. not, we're not, the parents aren't sitting there entertaining their kids. Or That's true. Or trying to, you know, help them have a good time or anything. They just, like, go out play, do whatever you need. Yeah. Do, I don't know if I've of. ever seen a Caucasus parent like entertain their child. I, there are children who I, 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 in our courtyard, I try to, you know, I want to see when they actually go into an, an, an apartment. Because like, I think you are outside <laughs> on the playground 24 hours a day. Like I think and that there are is children who like scream if they tap to go inside and you're like, Oh, is something happening? Oh no. It's just, Aisha needs to go up home and she doesn't want to. Wow. That's good observations. I think the only thing I'd add is the unique experience of raising kids biculturally really sensitizes you to, um, I think really positive parts on uh, kind of both cultures where you come from. Yeah. And I just consider it, I, our kids are really excited to be in the caucuses and mm. they, they understand that there is a lot that they get to do there and a lot they can experience that they probably wouldn't in the same way in the States. And there, you know, the, it comes at a bit of a cost in terms of there's cost in, in terms of, being with family and friends who we have back in the States and we miss them, yep. but it's just such a privilege. Um, yeah. They see the value in both. And I think when you come and live just like I did in my own culture, my own little bubble, it's easy to not see the value in other cultures and people that are different from you. And I really appreciate that about our kids. They really see the value in not being exactly like someone. I mean, and they see the value in, like speaking the same language as somebody too. Yeah. So Yeah, that's great. And of course, yeah, we're living in a place where our grandparents are not. Of course, we really miss that and our kids do too. Uh it makes me very grateful to my our close caucasus friends who treat our kids kind of like their own, you yeah. know. Um they've kind of taken responsibility too mm-hmm. for uh, making sure our kids are in good hands. So We'll let you know in 20 years how our kids turned out being raised biculturally. <laughs> we'll be going strong. No Episode pot, baby. 2,346. <laughs> Haven't they written some books about this topic? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you.